So, the kind of talks or teachings that I hope to offer on Monday nights are not so much the kind of things that you need to take notes for, and there won't be any grades. Um, They're really reminders of some inner truth that we all know, or at least that you can reflect about. You may agree with some parts and may discard other parts, which is fine. But they're really meant to be reminders to the heart for our own consideration and reflection and awakening. Tonight I'd like to talk about redemption. And I know it's a a very... um, important word in the Christian tradition and somewhat so in the Jewish tradition as well in a different way. Um, But I'd like to speak about it from the perspective of the Buddhist tradition. O nobly born, begin some of the great Buddhist texts, speaking to you. O you who are the sons and daughters of the Buddha, the sons and daughters of the awakened one, Remember who you really are. Remember that within you are the seeds of your own awakening, your own Buddha nature, your own true nature, or what my teacher Ajahn Chah liked to call the one who knows in us. The one who knows is listening to these words and reflecting. Do these actually speak about the wisdom and compassion that in, the, in our heart of hearts we know to be true. The reason I picked the topic of redemption for tonight as the first talk that I'm able to give in the new year is partly in response to the kind of moral dilemma that I see our society wrestling with from the front pages of most newspapers. A kind of demonization of North Korea, or Iraq and Saddam Hussein, or people on death row, the kind of struggle, should we go to war with Iraq, or should we go to war with North Korea, or should we keep the death penalty, and what should we do about those people, or what do we do about the whole prison system, this enormous racist prison industry that if we look at the current proposed budget in the state of California, everything is being cut roads, health services, schools, everything but prisons. It's enormous prison budget. And yes, it's true, there are psychopaths. There are people whose trauma is so great, so deeply traumatized, that they need to be arrested, locked up. Some of psychopaths may even lead countries. That's also possible. But as Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who lived through, you know, the, the Stalinist worst camps in Siberia, writes, the line separating good and evil passes not through states, nor between classes, nor between political parties, but right through the human heart. This line shifts. Inside of us it oscillates with the years. And even within hearts overwhelmed by evil, one small bridgehead of good is retained. 
and even in the best of hearts, there remains an uprooted small corner of evil. If you do not know this, you haven't looked inside. So, who do we leave out that we think isn't human, doesn't have these two parts? Or who do we leave behind? Both globally, we might say, but also very personally. What about our own mistakes and our own need for redemption? You remember the lines from Ryokan, the most beloved of all Japanese poets, where he writes, Spring, morning, my begging is finished. I hang my bowl by the side of the Buddhist shrine to play with the children. Last year, a foolish monk. This year, no change. What is the possibility, whether it is Ryokan or whether it is a prisoner on death row or somebody in between those images, what is the possibility of transformation, of redemption? Again, what about our own mistakes? And how does spirituality fit into this? So a story for you. A new young monk arrived at the monastery. He is assigned to help the other monks in copying the old canons and laws of the church by hand. He notes, however, that all of the monks are copying from copies, not from the original manuscript. So the new monk becomes interested. And he goes to the abbot to question this, pointing out, that if someone made even a small error in copying the first time, it would never be picked up from thereafter. In fact, that error would be continued in all the subsequent copies. The abbot replied, We've been copying this way from the copies for centuries, but you do make a good point, my son. So the abbot decided to go down into the dark vaults underneath the monastery where the original teachings and manuscripts was there in a locked vault that had not been opened for hundreds of years. Hours went by, and no one saw the old abbot. Eventually, the young monk got worried and went downstairs to look for him. He saw him banging his hand against his head and crying uncontrollably. uncontrollably. The young monk went up and put his hand on the shoulder of the old abbot and said, Father, Father, what is wrong? And in a choking voice, the old abbot replied, Oh, the word is celebrate, not celibate. (laughs) Oh, whoops. In the Buddhist teachings, one of the grounds of life that we are invited to experience and discover over and over is the truth of uncertainty and change, the truth of impermanence. We're invited to come to what Suzuki Roshi Zen Master called the beginner's mind 
and to see that in each new moment things are not as they have ever been before. And that eventually all things can be transformed. No matter what we've been through, the important things in life can be changed. It's never too late. We can always start again. Because each moment contains all of time, past and future are here. And so in this moment, we are again invited to bring forth the one who knows, the wise and compassionate heart. Now to illustrate the quality of redemption, I want to tell one of the most famous myths or stories from the tradition of the elders from our lineage. And it's the story of Angulimala, who was known um, as, who was, a murderer, a serial killer. And the story begins uh, when they speak of the birth of this man in India, Angulimala, at the time of the Buddha, who was born um, to a relatively upper-class family that worked in one of the uh, palaces. But he was born under, in, in the Indian constellations, he was born at a particular time of night that the astrologers call, he was born under the robber star, which was not an auspicious birth, unless you were, of course, born into a robber family, and then it was as it should be. And what this means is that by temperament, although this boy, his stars showed that he would have charisma and power, by temperament, his life tended toward conflict and trouble and difficulty. And his parents, being uh, informed by the astrologers of that time that their boy was born under the robber star, became quite frightened of this. So they brought him up very, very carefully and quite spiritually. In fact, per- perhaps too spiritually so. He became really interested in spirituality. And then he went out and he decided to find a teacher. He found his own guru for his spiritual interest. And he was so charismatic and devoted that he progressed in his spiritual practice and he soon became the favorite of this teacher. But the problem with teachers who have favorites is that then they're the people who aren't favorites. And it stirred up in the community a great deal of spiritual jealousy. And if you don't know what spiritual jealousy is, just go to regular jealousy. If you don't know what that is, remember back to middle school. And so those who were in this community, developmentally, that's the stage anyway, right? Um, started to spread false stories about his misuse of his role as the kind of favored son of the guru and began to tell everyone, including the guru, um, terrible things about Angulimala. And over days and weeks and months of these stories, gradually the teacher, who himself was somewhat misguided, became truly suspicious that Angulimala was going to take over his place and take over the spiritual community. And so he gave him a terrible task, and he said, if you would prove your spiritual power, 
this misguided way, then you must bring to me a mala, that is a set of beads, made with a hundred, excuse me, with a thousand fingers of a thousand human beings. And then you can, you know, then you can really show that you've fulfilled your spiritual task. Thousand is kind of a mythological number. It's not, it tells us that we're not in ordinary reality in an ordinary time. But somehow, instead, he was given a spiritual task to do something that was the opposite of what we would understand spirituality or religion to be. Now you hear that and you go, this is crazy. Why would anyone do that, right? Does that make sense? Does this sound crazy to you? And yet, if we look in human history, how many thousands and hundreds of thousands and perhaps millions of people have been killed for spiritual and religious reasons, for through the misuse of spirituality and religion, villages, tribes, nations destroyed by jealousy, by revenge, uh, by the spiritual belief that killing some other people in some way is actually part of our religious uh, necessity. So it sounds really stupid in the story, doesn't it? But then when we look at human history, we realize that this story is talking about something that's not truly so alien to the human species. So as the story goes on, Angulimala, because he was charismatic and powerful, became the most fearsome bandit of India at that time. The most fearsome bandit of the age. And he went around living in the forests and capturing groups of people and killing them and making his beads, his mala of fingers until he reached 700, 800, 900. In fact, until, as the story goes, he reached 999. He was about to fulfill the last evil deed of his task. Now, it happened, as the story is told, that at that time the Buddha was wandering in the forests of India not far from where Angulimala was killing people. And the Buddha heard the whole story and felt the fear among all the people there and said, I must go see this man. And everyone said, no, no, he's terrible. He is really evil. He will do you harm. Do not go there. Do not go, O blessed one. But you know how Buddhas are. They don't really listen to other people so well. They listen perhaps to a higher calling. And so he said, no, this is the work of an awakened one. And he found himself one morning after alms round headed into the deepest part of the dark forest of that particular province of India, going where no one else wanted to go, directly toward where they last heard Angulimala, the fearsome bandit, was to be found. (laughs) And sure enough, as he walked along the road, the, the trail through this deepest forest, Angulimala said, someone is coming, they're coming right to where I am. And this person seems to be walking very calmly and peacefully. Don't they know who I am, this terrible, frightening bandit? I will go and make this the 1,000th person, the completion of my spiritual task. 
And so as the story is told, Angulimala began to run after the Buddha. And because he was a very charismatic and powerful person, Angulimala, uh, almost uh, in an extraordinary way said of himself, I could outrun anyone, any human being, I could run faster than and catch them. I could, I could catch a swift horse. But no matter how fast I ran to try to catch up with this ascetic, this yogi, he always seemed to stay a few paces ahead of me, and yet he seemed absolutely calm. By some magic power in the story, the Buddha was able to rest completely calmly, and Angulimala was running as fast as he could to catch up and never got there. And finally, Angulimala shouted, Stop! Stop, you ascetic, you yogi! Stop! And the Buddha turned around and looked into his eyes with the deepest compassion and said, I have stopped, Angulimala. It is you who have not stopped. Angulimala stopped himself for a moment and said, What do you mean, I have not stopped? And the Buddha said, I have stopped all harm to living beings, great or small, and my heart is at rest. But you, Angulimala, have not stopped harming anyone. And he looked at him with such compassion. You have not stopped harming anyone, and therefore you have not stopped harming yourself. Now in another version, the Buddha says, Here, I will show you, Angulimala, take out your sword. Angulimala took out his sharp sword. Buddha said, Now cut off the the small limb of that young tree over there. And Angulimala took his sword and slashed off the limb of that tree quite proudly. And the Buddhist looked at him and said, Now, Angulimala, put it back. And Angulimala stood there, stock still, and said, I cannot do that. And the Buddha looked at him again with great mercy in his eyes and said, Your power is so limited It is only the power to destroy life. What about the power to bring life? And at this moment, as the story is told, in Angulimala, that corner of the heart that Solzhenitsyn spoke of, that bridge of goodness, that one piece that was not evil, so to speak, that inner nobility arose And Angulimala said, I have seen in your eyes, in this man looking at the Buddha, true fearlessness and true greatness. And I understand how terribly I have been misguided. And he threw his weapons into a pit and bowed and asked forgiveness and asked to follow the Buddha. This is like one of those fairy tales, right? And the Buddha said in the ancient Pali language, come and be a monk with us, in this kind of traditional phrase. And Angulimala left his bandit's clothing and took robes and became a monk. Now, it's not quite the end of the story. It goes on. This story is quite parallel to another story that I may tell sometime later this year, one the most beloved story of the Buddhists of the Himalayas, of Nepal and Tibet and Bhutan and so forth, Ladakh, which is the story of Milarepa, many of you have heard. And Milarepa also had created tremendous suffering by killing dozens of people as revenge for the loss of their family home and 
all that was taken from them. His mother, actually, it was Millerape's mom that made him do it. She said, if you're a good son, you will go out and revenge our family. And he did. But after he had done that, Millerape became tremendously fearful of the consequences of his actions. He said, I have made so much suffering, I was filled with remorse for the crimes I had done and for the harm that I had caused to others. And something in Milarepa, as in Angulimala, wanted redemption. And what this myth or story points to is that there is a seed in every human being, in almost everyone, perhaps everyone, that if we can touch it, if we can see it and understand it and come to some connection with that inner nobility that wants to be redeemed. As Albert Camus says, we all carry within us our places of exile, our crimes, our ravages. And our task is simple. It is not to unleash them on the world, but to transform them in ourselves and in others. So something in Angulimala wanted redemption, said, I've seen true fearlessness and greatness, and became a monk. He joined the band of followers of the Buddha and slowly began his training in virtue, in quieting of the mind and opening the heart. And over the weeks, they gradually made their way through the forests and villages across northern India for some weeks. One day, the Buddha was out on alms round shortly thereafter and saw the war chariots of King Pasanadi, a whole group of armed soldiers and then the king himself. The king stopped, paid his respects to the Buddha, and the Buddha said, O great king, are you going to war? And King Pasanadi said, No, we are here, the armed soldiers and myself, to track down the evil one, the most terrifying bandit in all of India. They had come finally to seek out Angulimala. The Buddha looked at King Pasanadi and said, And suppose such a one, even such a one as Angulimala, could be transformed and their heart could be changed so that they were to become virtuous, compassionate, and wise. What would you say, O king? And the king said, Blessed one, this seems truly impossible. But if it were done, I would bow to such a one. And the Buddha said, Come this afternoon to the forest glade where the monks are residing and I will answer your question in search for Angulimala. So in the afternoon, King Pasanadi arrived with his courtiers, paid his respects, bowed to the Buddha and sat. And the Buddha said, You have asked me about, you've told me about your search for this evil bandit Angulimala. And I asked you, suppose he could be transformed? And you replied, it seems impossible, but I would like you to know that there, seated in robes, just a few seats away to your left, is Angulimala. 
And the king turned, and his hair stood on end. He was so fearful because the reputation of this man. And his heart began to tremble. And the Buddha said, do not be afraid, fear not. It's really a lovely phrase, fear not. It's the phrase the angels always say in the, in the Bible when they appear. I mean, it would kind of flip you out a little bit if a big <laughs> angel appeared, right? So the first thing they have to say is, it's all right, don't be afraid, fear not, right? So the Buddha said, fear not, do not be afraid, and invited him to sit and breathe and just be present. And pretty soon... As things quieted, he invited Angulimala to tell the story of his life, which Angulimala did, how he had become this spiritual seeker, how he was born under the robber star, and then the task that his misguided guru had set upon him and the transformation in meeting the Buddha. And the king, King Pasanadi, marveled at this transformation and at the possibility of the transformation that the Dharma leads to in a human heart, and bowed and paid his respects. Now, later on, as they continued, the Buddha and Angulimala and company, when Angulimala would go out with his bowl to collect alms food, he didn't get much food. (laughs) He wasn't particularly liked in that part of India. (laughs) In fact, he was scorned. One day, he went out on alms round together with the Buddha, and as they were walking through a village in one of the homes, they heard a woman crying out greatly. She was in the midst of a difficult and dangerous labor. And those who were in the house came out, seeing the monks as holy men, and said, Oh, you who are holy men, please come come in and say a prayer for the mother of this house, for she is in a difficult and dangerous labor. And the Buddha said, you, Angulimala, go in there and say the traditional blessing. And indeed, Angulimala, now having transformed himself, felt tremendous compassion for this woman and for her yet unborn child. And for so much suffering that he caused, he said, oh, I hope she lives and I hope her child lives. So what should I do, Angulimala said to the Buddha. And the Buddha said, when you go in there, take your seat, as a monk, and then offer the traditional healing prayer that begins, Since my birth, I have not harmed a single living being. (laughs) And by the power of these words in this truth, may you and your child always be safe. And Angulimala looked back at the Buddha and said, But I cannot say that, sire, (laughs) because in fact I have harmed so many beings. And he began to weep tears and his heart of compassion opened when he could feel the harm that he had caused that would not enable him to say those words. And the Buddha looked at him and said, Just so, Angulimala, so now you must change this verse and go and say, Since my noble birth as a follower of the Dharma, I have not harmed a single living being. And by the truth of these words, may you and your child always be safe. And so Angulimala went into the house, sat as a yogi and a healer, put his hands together and made this great vow. And indeed the labor proceeded and everyone was, the child was born beautifully and safely and everyone was fine. And in fact, Angulimala became known as a great healer.
as he continued to practice and meditate, gradually his heart became purer and freer until he became fully liberated, awakened, an awakened one. But still, sometimes when he would go out with his alms bowl and get to the village, people would throw sticks and rocks and stones at him and try to beat him. And one day he was returning from alms round, bloody about the head, it said, and on the robes. And the Buddha looked at him and said, Angulimala, how is your body? And Angulimala said, it is in great pain, sir. Angulimala, how is your heart? And Angulimala said, my heart is at peace. And the Buddha said, just so for those who have awakened. Yet remember, Angulimala, your karma is coming to fruition. Bear it, noble one. Bear it with a wise and compassionate heart. So that's more or less the end of the story. It goes on, Angulimala lived as a monk for a number of years further and became known as a healer and as a wise person. So here's this image of the robber star, which I find interesting, um, because one of the questions it might ask is, can we triumph over our temperament and our circumstances? Is the stars under which you are born the determinant of your life? Or is it possible to release the body of fear, the habits that we carry, the small sense of self? Do you believe this? Do you believe that you can be transformed? The temperament and the circumstances of your life can be changed. Because they can one of the interesting ways to listen to a myth or a story like this is actually to listen and imagine yourself in this moment, this evening, as if you had to place yourself somewhere in the characters of the story. Who would you be? You know, would you be King Pasanadi, who's out, um, you know, looking to rid the world of evil with his troops, or would you be the woman in labor who's seeking healing, or would you be one of the other monks, you know, who Angulimala joins, or would you be the parents of the child born under the robber star? Or would you be the villagers who see him in monks' robes and are, are worried and frightened and don't know what to do? Where would you find yourself in the story? Story relates to the word storehouse. These old stories actually carry these enormous images and myths of our own psyche, the universal psyche. So here's the image of the robber star and of temperament and circumstance. Can you transcend temperament? Do you believe this? Or here this story archetypally describes the terrible fruits of misguided religion and spirituality, which is one of the great tragedies of this human earth, revenge, and we don't have to look very far away, those thousand fingers, the fundamentalists and fanatics, whether they're Jewish or Hindu or Muslim or Christian or in some cases, not so many, but in some cases, unfortunately, even Buddhist, every group has people who take 
and twist the spiritual message and use it for revenge. And we see this. It's not just Angulimala's time. And yet, in the story also, is the wondrous possibility that the greatest delusion and the greatest conflict can be transformed by a noble heart. I think about it, actually, in terms of the Middle East, because I know, you know, that if you study the Quran, there are ten times as many illusions and descriptions of God's mercy as there are to God's wrath. Ten times as many in the Quran. You sort of get a misguided picture because there's so, so much projection onto Islam and terrorism right now. Um, but actually, I think the percentages are worse in the Jewish and Christian the Old and New Testament. If you look, there's more of God's wrath and less of God's mercy if you look in the, in the uh, what are considered the you know, Old and New Testament scriptures than there is in the Quran. But I wonder who in the Middle East can stand up and speak for that. Because there is a possibility, an amazing possibility that a human being, any of us or any circumstance, can be transformed by one who carries a noble heart. Whether it is Nelson Mandela, 27 years in prison, who came out with such dignity and such compassion for every single part of that country, every single being, after torture and after all those years, who almost single-handedly transformed the conflict, or much of the conflict in South Africa. Whether it's Aung San Suu Kyi in Burma, or whether it's Martin Luther King, whose birthday is coming up, or whether it's Mahatma Gandhi, or one of a number of figures, a single human being who, like the Buddha in the story, rests in the great heart of compassion, who is truly fearless and committed to compassion, can make such a change in everyone around them. Because what they do is remind us of what we most deeply know. There's a quality of presence. The word in the story was stop, stop. Angulimala shouted and the Buddha said, I have stopped. You know, what you feel in that is actually the breaking of a spell. Angulimala was in a trance. He was under a spell. The spell of separateness, the spell of power, the spell of fear. And the Buddha appeared, appealed to the seeds of wisdom, to the one who knows in Angulimala. One of the descriptions of the word redemption in the Oxford English Dictionary, the oldest meanings of it, is the freeing of a prisoner. Redemption means the freeing from prison. And what happened to Angulimala was that he was freed from the spell, the trance, of believing that he had to kill people. We as a nation are somewhat under that trance, I'm sorry to say, and perhaps as a planet, as a species. Stop a moment of stillness, of profound stillness, to really listen. 
Listening in this way, someone described the American poet Randall Jarrett as a great, you might say, a dangerous listener, which is a lovely phrase. Somebody who listens that deeply that everything can change in that circumstance. Or, or William Butler Yeats, who put it this way, we can make our minds so still, so like still water, that beings gather around us that they may see their own images and so live for a moment with a clearer, perhaps even a fiercer life because of our quiet. We can make our minds so like still water that beings will see themselves reflected and live with a clearer, perhaps even a fiercer life because of our quiet. So here was the Buddha with Angulimala stopping, absolutely still, and just listening, just looking. The most extraordinary thing to diffuse a situation is just to stop, to stop the war in oneself. And for one who can do this, then even kings will bow in this myth. Then even the king himself will come and bow to one who can stop. What it says is that we can transform our measure of suffering by transforming the heart. And even though Angulimala went out afterward and was stoned, and beaten and faced terrible pain, he was able to take the sorrow of his life and transform it as this story. A woman in great distress over the death of her son came to the master for comfort. He listened to her patiently while she poured out all of her tears and tales of woe. And then he said softly, I cannot wipe away your tears, my dear. I can only teach you how to make them holy. And in some way, what Angulimala did was to make the sorrows that he had created, and that we all carry, we all have our sorrows, to make the sorrows holy. Redemption, starting anew, transforming our difficulties. This is a question we will all face in our marriages at times, or our love relationships. I certainly have faced it. In our families, in our businesses, in parenting among nations, in our neighborhood and community and society. And it is a sacred task. It's called the repair of the world. Can we take that which has been broken, that which has been betrayed, that which we have done that contributed to betrayal, and can we start over again? from the Christian Desert Fathers. Abbot Isaiah was asked by a soldier who had seen much war whether God would forgive a sinner like himself. 
after instructing him at some length in the art of a peaceful heart, the old man, the abbot, asked him, Tell me, my dear friend, if your cloak were torn, would you throw it away? Oh, no, he replied, I would mend it and wear it again. The old abbot said to him, Well, if you care for your cloak so much, will not the Holy One show mercy to his own creatures? Bear it, noble one. Bear the measure of sorrows that you have been given. The verse in the Buddha's Dhammapada, he writes, See how he abused me and beat me, how he threw me down and robbed me. Cling to such thoughts and you will live in hatred. See how he abused me, beat me, threw me down and robbed me. Abandon such thoughts and live in love. You too shall pass away. Knowing this, how can you continue to quarrel? Bear it, noble one. By bearing our sufferings nobly and our mistakes, we can become the medicine that heals the world. Now, one of the problems with this story, as I tell it, is it's a very masculine story. You know, and of course, if you look at war and those kind of games, so forth, that, are, you know, that, troubles I've talked about, most of them seem to come from one gender, but we'll kind of leave that aside for the moment. So to throw in um, respectfully a feminine voice, this is Grandmother Lula, who writes, I've always been glad most of all that I'm a woman. Women should not try to be men. They must refer back to that ultimate greatest strength, the sacrificing Enduring, birth-giving, transformative feminine spirit. A sacred quality. They need to know that the seductive feminine is but the first chapter in their lives. And from the highest spiritual femininity, they can do anything they want to in the world with grace and harmony. It is a strength that accomplishes anything because it is wisdom, patience, a waiting, a letting go, a moving with things. Trust this knowledge. Trust in the feminine. Hold on to the deepest faith in the reality of your own heart. Hold on and on and on and on in the face of everything in the world, disaster and hatred and crime and prejudice. Hold on to this great spiritual femininity that you were born with, this soul quality, because out of it comes wisdom, the words to say, the gestures to make, the deeds to do, hearts to transform. Bear it, noble one. Bear your sufferings and transform them. And what the story says is that the difficulties that we bear and the mistakes that we make can become the very medicine to heal the world. Since my noble birth, I have not harmed a single being. By this truth, may you and your child be safe. This vow. And whether it's the sponsor in a 12-step program who's hit bottom themselves and really knows what it's like to be there for another person stepping out of the trance of addiction, 
or whether it's the three lifers at San Quentin who met a month or so ago with the Oakland police chief, partly negotiated through the Inside Prison Project that uh, Jacques Verdun and others have been doing, so that they could talk about how to help undo the violence and the killing that was happening in Oakland, that they'd, their community that they'd been a part of, a kind of remarkable meeting between the police chief and these guys in prison to talk about what can we do. There's a certain moral authority that is given to us when we transform the depth of our most terrible acts and our deepest betrayals and our greatest pain when we say, yes, I faced this, I went through this, I did this, and now somehow I am a different person. A story that comes through the Insight Prison Project from a man in uh, prison in New Jersey who wrote, it's from the book sending program, today I start my 28th year in here I laughed very hard when I read that you wrote I might as well be a monk because one of the nicknames they call me is the Monk of Trenton or the Smiling Buddha. I wasn't always that way. The first ten years I was known as the most mean and dangerous man on the block. In 1985 I was put in ad seg for stabbing a man and my mentor appeared in the form of a hitman for the Irish mob who also was a yogi. He gave me a copy of the Anapanasati Sutra and the sutra on mindfulness can convince me that I could not live my life out of anger and rage. He put me on a hatha yoga routine in place of my martial arts training and had me do pranayama and sitting meditation. And my journal records, when I was young I wanted to be accepted and after I was accepted I wanted power. And after that I realized that power without wisdom leads to sorrow. I had a dream of violence so bad I woke up and upon remembering I asked, is this me? Where does this violence come from? I am creating it myself. Is this who I am? For the next two years, I stayed in the hole. I didn't come out of my cell, except to mop the block and all the tears once a day. I gave away all my property except my law books and my other spiritual books. I gave myself up to yoga, pranayama, and meditation. I followed the breath for a long time and practiced mindfulness Nothing seemed to be happening. This is helpful to hear that sentence there. (laughs) Then I realized that the objects of my awareness began to have texture. By texture, I mean depth. This texture is deceptive because it arises from the memory or imagination. But soon the texture will reveal clarity. This is the moment of present awareness without the distorting effects of memory or imagination. I don't know if this is what's supposed to happen, but it's what happened to me. It was during this time period that people started calling me the monk of Trenton, and now I'm someone that the other young prisoners come to. Thich Nhat Hanh puts it this way. He said, being able, being awake to the greatest suffering we encountered can heal some of the suffering we experience when our lives are not very meaningful or useful. When you confront the kinds of difficulties that we face during the war or the worst times in your life, you see that you can be a source of compassion and great help to many other suffering people. 
in that intense suffering, you feel a kind of relief and joy within yourself because you know that you can become an instrument of compassion through it. So, as I mentioned, I'm trying to help set up this meeting with the Dalai Lama and some prisoners in New York and some of the Tibetans, um, lamas particularly, who spent years in, in the Chinese army's prison camps in Tibet and came out through it, were tortured and now have been released, to give some teachings for those who are in prisons. But it's not just the people in prison I know somebody who sat with the Dalai Lama, got the chance to sit with him, and the Dalai Lama just held his hand for a long time as he talked, and it changed his life. This was a person who was often angry, easily, terrible temper, violent. He said, for a year after the Dalai Lama held my hand, I didn't have a single thought of anger. It just went away. I just felt so loved holding the hand of the Dalai Lama. The Buddha said, who is your enemy? Mind is your enemy. And who is your friend? The mind is your friend. This mind that has been the source of destruction and conflict is also the source of reconciliation. It can be transformed. And this is the mystery of consciousness. It is like a river. And it is always changing. Followers of the way, the most important teaching for you, this world is full of second chances. In our life, redemption is always possible. Sometimes, it's only tiny things. This is Julia Childs, who writes, always remember, if you're alone in the kitchen and you drop the lamb, you can just pick it up. Who's going to (laughs) know? Right? But then today I heard on NPR Congresswoman Eleanor Holmes Norton from Washington, D.C., really quite wonderful. And at one point she was talking about Governor George Wallace, the rabid segregationist for a long time, who gradually, after he was shot and all those things, continued to run for office. She said, you know, at the end there were a lot of African Americans who voted for him because he gave up being a racist and we saw that he was different and we were willing to give him our vote. It was a really extraordinary thing to have her say. She said, when a person pays attention, they look not to who a person was, but who that person can become. So sometimes with this possibility of redemption, it means going back to your lover and saying that thing from your heart that you really need to say. Or to your children or your parents. Or sometimes when you're sitting in meditation, it just means going back to your breath after all the judgment and the sense of failure and I haven't done it right and just letting go and saying, I can start anew. Or going back to work or to the thing that you care about to heal this world again and again. To know that there is redemption. That transformation is the game of life. Ginny Matthews a lay priest ordained in the Rinzai Zen tradition, talked about having dramatic and ecstatic experience during one of her Zen, strict Zen seshin or retreats, that took her into a dimension of beyond this body and mind of non-being, joyful, silent, beyond the world. 
Afterwards, she spent a year racked with guilt at having left behind her family, especially her young son, who was with her at the time. Confused as to how to balance the dimensions of being and non-being, she finally had a chance again to meet with the teacher, Sasaki Roshi, and ask for advice. After listening for the story, he sat quietly for a moment, then looked at her straight in the eyes and said gently, Death okay, resurrection okay too. (laughs) It's okay to leave, and it's okay to come back. Even now, we can stop and breathe and listen to the one who knows, to the wisdom of the heart. O nobly born, you are invited to plant new seeds, to nurture compassion, to change direction whenever it is called upon. It is so mysterious, this consciousness. It is a river, a waterfall, an ocean. And if you bring a lamp into a dark place, it doesn't matter if it's been dark for a day or a thousand years, it will still be illuminated. So let your eyes close for a second. Just a moment's reflection. That invites illumination and new beginnings. What is it time to start anew no matter what has happened? And what asks for that great noble heart in you, that heart of compassion, to see the possibility of redemption in yourself, in the world around you. Trust this power. Trust this possibility. In your heart, you know the transformation. Is it the root of human possibility for you and every being? And then a little poem to end the talk. Having no gift of strategy or arms, no secret weapon, and no walled defense, I shall become a citizen of love, that little nation with the blood-stained sod, where even the slain have power, the only country that sends forth an ambassador to God. Renouncing self, and crying out to end all wars. I seek a land that lies all unprotected like a sleeping child. Nor is my journey reckless and unwise. Who doubts that love has an effective weapon will meet with great surprise. I shall become a citizen of love. Jessica Powers. Do not doubt that redemption is possible. It could happen for Angulimala. (laughs) 
even the rest of us. So I thank you for your kind attention and care. Also for your generosity in coming here and supporting Spirit Rock. Um, The chant that we'll do in India when you meet someone, traditionally you put your hands together and bow to them and say, Namaste, which means I honor the divine within you. I see who you really are, the source of this redemption, to see that secret beauty in another. And the root of that word, namaste, is the word namo, to bow, to to pay respects. And so we'll chant it nine times before we go out into the evening. And as we do, you can sense in your heart what it is that asks for your respect, the beauties of the world, the sorrows, those who are isolated, those who may need to transform, or those in our nearest circle of loved ones. Let yourself bow inwardly as you chant and offer your respects to this earth. especially to the seeds of beauty and the possibilities of goodness in all of the leaders of this world, wherever they are, that that may awaken and come forth in them. May your week ahead be filled with small redemptions and great beauty. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.